You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 202. This is our second episode discussing the events of the Russian Civil War. And in this episode we're going to dive pretty deep into the political developments in the Bolshevik party and their leadership as the Civil War first began. This includes their own view on how to run the country as well as their interactions with the peaceful opposition or the other political parties that functioned within the Bolshevik state. We will discuss the concept of war communism, what it was, when it was put into place, and whether it was a reaction to the war or just represented Bolshevik policy. Finally, we will close out this episode by having our first discussions about the white movement that would become the greatest threat to the Bolshevik government and discuss some of the challenges that the movement would have. Before any of that though, we need to talk. We need to talk about the Bolsheviks. In 1918, they would rename themselves into the Russian Communist Party, better known today as simply Communists. Some of the events that occur in this and later episodes occur before this name change took place. Some take place after. To try and avoid further confusion from here on out, I will be referring to the Bolshevik Party and its members as the Communists when the events that we are talking about take place after the October Revolution of 1917. With events before that revolution, I will still use the term Bolshevik. This is not entirely accurate to history. Again, they didn't rename themselves until about midway through 1918. But I think it will reduce confusion since these episodes are not strictly chronologically ordered, and I could be talking about events before and after uh, the rename in a very short period of time. Upon further reflection, I should have made this change from the start, but I didn't, so I'll be doing it now. So just to reiterate, the communists that I'll be referring to are mostly exactly the same as the Bolsheviks. Uh, they just renamed themselves in the middle of 1918. As we dig into the events in the political re arena in communist-controlled territory during the Civil War, the role and organization of the Communist Party is critical to understanding the relationship between the political leaders and the rest of the citizens. 
Over the course of 1918 and 1919, there was a serious shift in the makeup of the party and its role in society. The revolution had been launched and sustained thanks to large numbers of workers, either factory workers or those of the lower classes. However, during the first two years that the party was in power, this would rapidly change. By the end of 1919, only about a fifth of all of the members of the Communist Party were part of the working class, and there would be a growing divide between those within the party and those outside the party. If you were a party member, you got paid more, you got better food, you were provided with better housing, you were given access to better things than those outside the party. To sustain this system, a huge amount of resources were funneled into the party. In A People's Tragedy, the Russian Revolution 1891-1924, Orlando Figs claims that the housing and living budgets of the communist quarters in the Kremlin in Moscow, which housed 5,000 party members, was greater than the amount spent on social programs for the entirety of Moscow outside of its walls. This system bred both resentment from outside the party and also bred corruption within it. Bribes, black market trading, and sale of public property at a huge markup were all common occurrences. There were several attempts to get this corruption under control, with several high-ranking officials right up to and including Lenin himself speaking out against it and attempting to take actions to address it. Nobody could really fix it, though, and it was just too ingrained into the political situation at the time. The growing divide that all of this corruption, special treatment, and resentment caused between the party and those outside the party would be an important driver of events as the communists tried to get control of their country. This resentment was most important as it related to the workers. The workers had been an important piece of the February Revolution, and then another important piece when the Bolsheviks took control in October. The relations between the communists and the workers would then be very challenging for the duration of the Civil War. There is some evidence that there were wide swaths of these workers who did not support the communists, but the working groups officially did. This was due in no small part to the actions of the communists, who were very good at making sure that the appropriate views were expressed in workers' meetings. Possible leaders in any kind of agitation were also removed from the unions over time. Any resistance to the communists should not be overstated, though. The workers were critical vectors of support for the communists, and if there were some large changes to the viewpoints of those in the working classes, they never fully abandoned the communists or the communist ideal. One of the reasons for the shift in support, at least early in the conflict, was that many of the most ardent supporters of the new communist government who had been active in the working class had then joined the army or the party itself. This had the effect of moving some of the most outspoken voices within the workers' groups. There was also a demographic shift in the cities and in the average factory worker. During the war, the average worker would get older and would be more likely to have a family, as younger workers were absorbed into the army and into the party. One of the policies that the communists were forced to continue, even though it was not popular among the people and had played a role in causing the revolutions in the first place, was the policy of food rationing. Food rationing had been a key feature of many countries during the war, including Russia, and the practice would not end with the Russian exit from the war in early 1918. Instead, it would increase. Rationing would peak in 1920, with many types of food being rationed with different amounts given to different types of citizens. Workers were all split up based on their perceived value of their work to the state, and they were given rations appropriate to that valuation. This meant that, for example, transportation workers might receive a larger ration than other types of workers. Workers were still getting paid, 
for at least the early part of the Civil War period, but they were often not receiving enough pay to really supplement that ration very much, especially as inflation continued and got worse. In the cities, this resulted in community kitchens being well-trafficked, and a move away from currency being the primary method of exchange, a change that was actually intended for reasons we'll discuss later in this episode. With the rationing and a lack of support for the communists in some areas, there were still strikes. There were not as many as you might have expected, though, given the economic hardships that would be experienced. This was for two major reasons. One was the militarization of the workers and the very powerful crackdowns by the communists. For the duration of the Civil War, in the communist-controlled cities, workers were considered as part of the war effort and on equal footing with the Red Army, and that meant that resistance from workers, like striking, was treated like desertion and treason. This gave the communist leaders the justification for the measures that they took to crack down on the strikes. Leaders and the strikers themselves were at times deported to prisons, and other workers brought in to replace them. It was also very common for any striker or organizer to be labeled as a white agent who were doing what they could to bring down the communist government from the inside. This is perhaps the most classic excuse for a government that is in power but is facing internal opposition while also fighting an external foe. It made it easier to remove anybody who the leaders did not agree with. Even if the strikers had nothing to do with the whites or the greens or the blacks or anybody else who was resisting the reds, labeling them as a white supporter was very helpful, and and it made them not just an example, but also a propaganda piece. While the workers represented an at-times disorganized opposition to the communists, there were also well-organized and official opposition groups as well. These groups would play an early role in organizing and leading protests and strikes, and they would always have a somewhat tenuous relationship with the communists. The two largest groups were the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries, or SRs, both of which were socialist parties, but they just disagreed with the specific flavor of socialism espoused by the Bolsheviks. Lenin didn't really like these groups. He had always wanted the Bolsheviks to be in sole control of the Russian government, and so the earliest moves against them was actually something we discussed last time, the dismissal of the Constituent Assembly, after the Bolsheviks did not receive a majority of the seats. This decision, plus other communist actions, made it clear that they were actually antagonistic against these opposition groups. It would also represent the first steps in what would be a slow and steady degradation of relations, which would, in later years, result in the removal of all official opposition groups to the communists. In the early years, though, especially in 1918, the Mensheviks and SRs were generally not actively trying to necessarily overthrow the communist government like the white movement would seek to do uh, militarily and violently. Instead, they were acting as more of a loyal opposition, at least in their eyes, although they were energetic and at times frustrating opposition in the eyes of the communists. The two oppositional groups would be at their greatest point of strength in 1918, when the communists were not yet fully established and the civil war had not yet reached the levels of violence that it would reach in later years. This was an important period and would turn out to be the critical period for the opposition, even if they did not know it at the time. During this period, they would organize several strikes and protests, and even though these actions were often uncoordinated, they did still result in a response. This response would be from the communist leaders as they began to put pressure on the Soviets, which were still very powerful and which had previously been purely democratic groups, 
and they wanted them to be very uninviting to the Mensheviks and SRs, because the Mensheviks and SRs had been using the Soviets as a vector through which they could use their power. Party orders began to come down, and some Soviets began to make it clear that Menshevik and SR members were no longer welcome. At the same time, the overall power within the Soviets began the process of concentration, which generally favored the more organized and united communists. This would have the effect of silencing many voices that maybe did not agree with the leaders of, the so of what the Soviets were saying. 1918 would be the best possible time for these other socialist groups to organize in opposition or to influence over the government, because by the time that 1918 was over, the Bolsheviks had solidified their power both in the government and in the Soviets and in the army. Just as importantly, the white threat was becoming very real. Throughout late 1918 and early 1919, Menshevik and SR-led agitation would continue. In these efforts, even if they were being slowly moved out of the leadership positions, they were still able to utilize their strong base of support among the working classes and in the Soviets. They also had a new weapon at their disposal, and one given to them by the Bolsheviks. As I mentioned earlier, there was resentment among many workers about the privileges given to party members, and the Mensheviks and SRs would tap into this resentment in their calls for actions. When these strikes happened, the communists developed an effective set of procedures that they put in place to handle them. A good example of this playbook in action was a strike that occurred at the Alexandrovsky Railway uh, Workshops in February 1919. The workers at this workshop went on strike and protested the fact that they were not actually being paid their full salary, and in their opinion they were not receiving enough food. When these demands were brought by the strike leaders to the authorities, they were actually pretty accommodating, and the workers went right back to work. Everything seemed to be going very well for the workers, but then that night the Cheka arrived and arrested the leaders of the strike. When the workers then went on strike again the next day in an effort to have them released, things quickly became violent. The workers were evicted by force and the workshops were temporarily shut down. More leaders were removed from the workers, and with all of them labeled with the most scarlet of letters, counter-revolutionary. Over the next month, workers were slowly let go until eventually all those who had participated in the strike were gone, with new workers brought in to take their place. I think it's important to point out that one of the reasons that examples like this were so effective is that the communists controlled food, dis food distribution, and the ration a person was given was dictated by the work that they did. So if somebody went on strike and was fired due to that act, even if they found a job, they may not be able to get the same level of food that they had before, which could be really rough for the workers with families. With the communists becoming very skilled and experienced in dealing with strikes, what the socialist parties really needed was a united front. The Mensheviks, the SRs, and even the smaller groups like the left SRs or the Social Democrats needed to join together if they wanted any chance of forming any actual opposition. But of course, they did not do that. They agreed on many things, especially on a general dislike for the Communist Party, which they, many believed had created a new privileged class, just the thing that they were fighting against. But unfortunately, for their future prospects, this was pretty much where their agreements ended. This inability to join together made it easy for the Communists to degrade their power one by one, to minimize their influence separately. Even with their inability to present a united front, that didn't mean that there were not successes that the opposition stumbled into, at the very least, but most of these successes were not within Russia. 
One of the last successful and meaningful acts of the socialist opposition in communist Russia would be to make sure that the international socialist groups who the communists saw as critical to their coming international revolution knew that things were not going very well in Russia for actual socialists. This was at the same time that the socialists were trying to portray Russia as an awesome, almost utopian country for socialists, and it turned many international socialist groups away from the communists. Movements by the communists against the Mensheviks and SRs would escalate as the scale and scope of the civil war expanded, and as the white forces reached their strongest point. The socialist groups found themselves trapped in the middle ground that was continually shrinking as both the whites and the reds withdrew further and further into extremism. They tried to ride the middle ground as long as they could, but it would prove to be untenable. They were forced to either go against the communists to be labeled as whites, counter-revolutionaries, and traitors, and the only other option was to join the whites, where they were often not accepted due to concerns that they were too close to the communists. Some Mensheviks and SR leaders would eventually move fully into the white camp, a choice that they felt like they had to make given their treatment by the communists. By late 1919, there were not as many SR and Menshevik leaders that were still considered to be opponents of the communists, but as legal opposition. A few of these were still allowed to participate in the communist-controlled Soviets so that the communists could claim, on the international stage and to other socialists, that they were still allowing the more moderate socialists to participate. After 1919, the position of the opposition parties further deteriorated. If their repression had increased as the whites grew stronger, as the white threat receded in 1920, it only got worse. This went against the hopes of the remaining members of the Mensheviks and SRs, who had hoped that the removal of the white threat would mean a return to some form of normalcy, allowing them to once again enter the political arena. Instead, the communists moved to completely remove them. On August 20th, when the All-Russian Mensevik uh, Conference began in Moscow, all of its members were arrested. Then over the next two months, the leaders of all of the local Menshevik groups would also be arrested. A similar arrest cycle was put in place for the SRs. In November, the communist government published a statement that said that all of the arrested members were hostages, and their fate would be dictated by the future actions of its members. With all of the leadership in prison and their lives being used to guide the action of their members, the oppositional parties essentially ended. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy.
It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. One final topic we should discuss about the communists before we move over to spending some time on the whites in the episodes is war communism. Now, war communism is a catch-all term that attempts to describe the entirety of the communist economic policy for the Civil War years, or from 1918 to 1921. There are a few problems with that name, though, which we need to talk about before we dive into what war communism actually was. First, it was not actually called war communism during the Civil War, the time in which it was actually implemented and used. That term would not first be used until 1921, at which point Lenin would use it in a speech, and that wasn't long before it was replaced by the new economic plan. Second, it was not necessarily just created and put in place as a reaction to the war. In later years, once war communism was replaced, there were many communists who looked back on the period of war communism as an era when things were actually being done correctly. It would even be called by one communist author the heroic age of communism. This was because, in many ways, war communism was in line with the official policies advocated for by the Bolsheviks before they took power. But as we will discuss shortly, the overall economic plan would not work out very well. And this would cause many communist leaders to try and distance themselves and the party from the policies of war communism. And in fact, they would use the term war communism to make the policies seem like a stopgap measure forced upon the communist leaders by the civil war and the hardships that it created. Another reason that these economic policies were not referred to as war communism as a group is because they were not all put in place at the same time. The communists had a few problems when trying to put their economic policies into place. Their ability to force change and the state of the Russian economy were top among them. Before 1920, there were large swaths of the country, even those areas that were nominally under communist control, where the communist government in Moscow had little actual power. This made it difficult to, say, put in place economic policies around food and other rural products. These challenges meant that war communism had to be built up over time, as the opportunity to do so presented itself. This meant that for the majority of the Civil War period, most of Russia, either controlled by the communists or the whites, would move forward with a mix between communist ideas and capitalism that had existed before the revolution, and which was so anathema to communist beliefs. Throughout 1919 and 1920, war communism principles would slowly grow in application to varying degrees of success. So what were those principles? Well, there were six of them. First, the state would control all of the means of production, or at least to the maximum amount possible. Second, the state would be in control of the distribution of whatever that production created. These first two principles included the production and distribution of food, which meant forced requisition of food from the rural peasants and the rationing of that food to those in the cities. Third, the labor of every citizen in its type and duration was controlled by the state, and this resulted in very strict rules being put in place for workers of all types and a high degree of control for those rules and their application. Fourth, the economy was to be extremely centralized or as centralized as possible. The goal was to have the entire state economy controlled by a few 
members of a central committee that controlled production and distribution. These committees would also be in control of foreign and domestic trade, with unauthorized trade of goods eventually becoming illegal. Fifth, there was a general goal for the state to produce everything that it needed from internal sources, instead of having to rely on foreign imports. Sixth, and finally, there would be no currency. Instead of currency, any exchange of good would take place with the state, which would be majority, or through in-kind exchanges. These six principles were far-reaching, and they would take time and patience and no small amount of skill to put in place. As I mentioned earlier, there were many problems in trying to take these theories and put them into reality. Some of the problems were rooted in things outside of communist control, or at least realities that were very hard to see how they could have worked around. The state was at war, and therefore a huge amount of the country's output and resources were going to that war effort and sustaining the Red Army. Most importantly, a large percentage of the food that was grown was going to the war, and the problems with food would intensify as the war continued. The peasants were not producing as much food due to the realities of the war, and they also resisted the requisition of what they created by the communist government, since they did not feel that they were receiving enough or sometimes anything. This put the state in a bit of a bind, because in assuming responsibility for production and distribution, if that production and distribution was not successful, there was only one group to blame. Well, actually, they could blame another group. They could blame it on counter-revolutionaries, which communists would make some have some success in doing. The sixth principle mentioned that the communists wanted to remove money as a method of exchange, and this was another difficult problem, since there was so much money already in circulation, and there was of course a good amount of attachment to that money by the people who possessed it. The communists had a plan for this, though. Instead of trying to remove the money from circulation and from savings, they instead decided to pump massive amounts of new money into the economy. When this act was combined with the already high levels of wartime inflation, the value of money plummeted. The goal was, instead of removing money, to make it completely worthless. By destroying the real value of money, both as wages and savings, one Bolshevik economist, E.A. Priobravhensky, hoped to turn the state-controlled printing presses into, quote, the machine gun of the commissariat of finance, which directs its fire into the rear of the bourgeoisie. Quote. This effort would be successful, and Russian paper money would become worthless. Unfortunately, that did not mean the efforts to remove money and then replace it with a system of in-kind exchange that was regulated by the party was totally successful. Both production in the cities and agricultural production would fall drastically in the years of the Civil War, partially due to the effects of the war, but also due to the effects of the communist actions to alter the economy. Perhaps the greatest indication of war communism's failure as an economic policy was that it would be rapidly replaced when the war was over. This would have been completely normal for a wartime policy to be revoked after the war. But in the case of war communism, instead of the replacement moving closer to the pre-revolutionary Bolshevik ideal, the new economic policy would move further away and further towards capitalism. That's a story for a later episode. We will spend the rest of this episode introducing the whites and the white movement, and specifically some of the problems and trends within the white movement that we will be following over the next few episodes. The white movement as a whole is difficult to precisely define, and is best outlined as simply saying, not the communists. 
This is because the white leaders and the groups that they led often had little unified policy. They were a big tent political group, to use a modern term. Because of this fact, they were a group with a diverse set of goals and opinions, which made the easiest course of action to be a simple rejection of communist ideas. This caused its own problems, and during the Civil War, they would often find it a challenge to rally support to their cause of simply not communists, because people were looking for something to fight for, not necessarily just against. It also caused the leaders of the white movement to actively avoid precise political stances or commitments. It was often difficult for the movement as a whole to answer questions like, were they supporting a return of the monarchy? Were they supporting the provisional government of mid-1917? Were they continuing the sub to support the rural land reform put in place by the provisional government? Were they going to support the independence of states like Finland, Latvia, Ukraine, and other areas which were formerly part of the Russian Empire but were seeking independence? These are just some examples of the questions that the white leaders often did not have good answers to. Providing answers was critical, though, and because support from various groups within Russia were contingent upon answers, the whites had to give them. By trying to avoid taking definitive stances, the whites also gave the communists a lot of latitude when it came to prescribing beliefs and policies to them, which let the communists set the narrative of the conflict. One of the only true political stances that the whites would arrive at fairly early is that they did not want the Tsar to return or any other monarch. But even this statement came under criticism from some within the white camp who actively wanted that to happen. Eventually, the leaders would be forced to make decisions, though, and by early 1919, the strongest white leader at the time, General Denikin, would make some, well, actually, he would make some kind of decisions. By that point, he was in control of thousands of square kilometers of southern Russia, and he ruled an area consisted of 40 million people. This was largely an area made up of rural populations, which meant the question of land reform was incredibly important. The answer that would eventually be provided to that question was, to many, deeply disappointing. Denikin felt that he had to try and pull through on some kind of middle ground, trying to pick and choose between socialist and Bolshevik land reform policies, while also making sure that the old landowners, who were a critical base of support for the whites, would accept the new measures. Just as important as these decisions around land reform, the whites would also eventually have to take a definitive stance on the non-Russian nationalities, and specifically the independence of those nationalities. This decision would be forced upon them by the resistance provided by those nationalities to communist encroachment and due to their strong push for independence. They would dodge having to answer the question as long as possible, and far longer than they should have. By being evasive with their policy, the white leaders would push away many groups like the Fens or Estonians or Ukrainians, who would have been the strongest supporters of the white cause. The problem was that the reason the whites often refused to answer is because they knew that nobody would like the answer that they would actually give, because official white policy, supported by its strongest leaders, was that they supported local autonomy but not independence. This put them at odds with several groups, especially those that had already succeeded in gaining independence. Over time, the white leaders would show time and again that they would take a hard-line stance against these new countries. When a Finnish delegation was sent to meet Admiral Kolchak, a white leader in Siberia, he would not allow his government to recognize Finnish independence in any way. He would not even meet with the Finns. This hardline stance, the idea that Russia must be the old Russia, and it was entitled to all of the territory of the empire, would come back to bite the whites many times throughout the conflict. 
Now, for the last few minutes, I've been simplifying things a bit, speaking of the whites as a kind of unified group, but they were far from unified. There were white armies in northern Russia, in the Baltics, in the south, and in Siberia. All of them were led by different leaders with different opinions and different policies. They were supported by groups with even a wider set of opinions and policies. There was no Lenin figure among the whites, to their great detriment. It did not help that the groups were also geographically separated, and that many of the shortest routes that could have connected their territory were controlled by the communists. For example, Denikin and Kolchak were the white leaders who controlled southern Russia and Siberia. The easiest way for them to communicate would have been the overland route, but this was simply impossible. Instead, all communication had to be routed around the world, through London or Paris. There would be efforts by the western countries to bring the white leaders together, especially Denikin and Kolchak, but they would just never really happen. We will discuss the efforts by the western powers next episode, but I just want to leave you as we move into these sort of white episodes in the coming with with one key point about the white movement it was incredibly divided while i will often simplify down to just saying the whites or you'll often read about the whites they were different groups really pursuing different goals at different times so that put them at a critical disadvantage when facing the struggling at times but always united communists Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week for episode three on the Russian Civil War.